CNN CEO Chris Licht is out following an embarrassing Atlantic profile and the widely criticized Trump town hall. We'll discuss the future of the network and what that saga says about the state of media generally. Then Ricky hit the trail to spend some time with the youngest candidate in the presidential race. We'll juxtapose her experience with the growing concerns over the age of the current occupant of the Oval Office. Then, a new study from Stanford University is being dubbed the most comprehensive look at charter school performance ever. We'll break down those findings. All of that and more on The Lost Debate Show, a show for political eclectics. Hello, everybody. I'm Ravi Gupta. And I'm Ricky Schlott. Well, Ricky, how are you braving this crazy, crazy air in New York City right now? I went for like a really long walk last night and I'm regretting it right now. But I was so pent up in my apartment that I was like, I just, I need to go. And now my throat feels weird and my voice sounds weird. So perfect podcasting conditions. Well, sh- shame on you and you and Mickey, because Mickey, our producer of this show, I was, we were on a call yesterday morning talking about like the, what stories we we're going to pick for today. And I started coughing. I can't remember if it was you or Mickey, but one of you was like, no, I just think it's that you're old. I was like, no, nah, I really think that something's wasn't wrong with this air. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> I really am having but a hard I time. probably would have said that as well. <laughs> so if it was Mickey, I ditto. Um, yeah, I it's it's kind of nutty. It's way better today though. Yesterday was like For sure. literally yellow. And I'm not sure what was wrong with me, but I was like working outside on a sidewalk cafe and going for walks. And then I looked at my phone. I hadn't really been online and all my headlines were like coming up on my phone were like, this is potentially not safe or healthy. So, you know, glad that I found that out after my day outdoors. It makes you really feel for people who live in cities like Delhi that have yeah. this kind of air all the time. I mean, I guess people become used to it, but man, that can't be good for you. Or also the fact that we're all bitching and moaning here in New York, but like in Canada, they literally have millions of acres of their land on fire. And I feel like no one's really talking about that. So thoughts with Canada will survive. It's a very American uh, crisis. It's so self-centered. Uh, they, did, they did ground planes at LGA. I was actually going to leave town yesterday and fly down to Asheville just to get away from it all. And they grounded all the planes uh, at LGA at the exact time I was going to head out of town. So it thwarted my plan. Tough life for Ravi. Wildfires raging up north and Ravi can't just hop out of town because he has a little bit of a cough. <laughs> womp womp. There you go. Okay. I have a good track record of getting out of town quickly. Like just as COVID was hitting and I flew down to Nashville for three months, I got out of here just in, just before so they started canceling flights. All right. Well, let's talk about the CNN stuff, Ricky. So the CEO and chairman of CNN, Chris Licht, is out. We had previously talked mm-hmm. about this Trump town hall. Since then, there was this long Atlantic piece that we'll link in the show notes, basically a profile that seemed to have, you know, the reporter... Tim Alberta seemed to have been on this case for a while. He followed Chris Lick to the gym. He followed him around CNN. He followed him around the country. And there's just, I I can't even count the number of cringeworthy anecdotes that are in this piece, but also like substantively troubling things that came out of this piece. But the, the sum total of it all is that from the point that that piece was published uh, to the point where Licht was fired. I think it was even less than a week. Like he he could not survive that piece combined with all the other issues, the ratings, the the fallout mm-hmm. internally over the town hall meeting. This is, I think, a turning point in some ways, or at least a signal of a turning point in media. Like what what is the future of CNN here? 
I think it's a signal that at the point that Licked joined, which would have been in May of last year, so just mm-hmm. barely a year, we were already past a turning point. Because I think what he right. was trying to do was like force a damage control turning point away from the like pundit hair on fire, everything is ending and fascism is tomorrow sort of model of CNN towards something that it used to be in the pre-2016 era. And I think his short stay here is a demonstration that that just wasn't going to happen. Um, and so, I mean, whoever <laughs> whoever takes on CNN now, I think it has a tall task to um, try to fix the failure of a fix, which, you know, I'm, I'm never going to say that I'm a CNN fan in any way, shape or form, but I would say like, even though there are some pretty unflattering details of Licht, like him saying that his body is a machine and some pretty like grossly, <laughs> grossly unaware as a media executive, you'd think oh, he would be pretty context. good at, <laughs> yeah. let me give context you give to context, what you're talking and about. Then I it's have not going to circle my circle here, but. It's not going to make this any better. I just want to explain <laughs> to what you're talking about. So he he goes to this boutique gym in Manhattan that a lot of celebrities go to. And, and I don't know who's advising him, but he allowed the, Tim Alberta to follow him at the gym, which alone is going to... Oh, the PR people at CNN works. that were involved in this are out <clears throat> as they should be. For sure. Never should have happened. But at one point, he's like lifting uh, dumbbells and goes, uh, let's see Jeff Zucker do this. And Zucker was his predecessor. It's just like reeks <laughs> of just insecurity and, and just being focused on all the wrong things. And his body is and like a machine. And apparently the New York Post, I, I can't verify the scoop personally, but they say that his weight loss has been due to Zepic. I knew you were going to bring this up. <laughs> I knew you were going to bring this up. But to, to circle my circle all the way back around, as I was saying before, I'm not a CNN fan. I'm not, I'm not, I was never really that uh, gung-ho that this was necessarily going to be fixed, but I'm not a part of this. Like everyone who's cheering and and glad that this flopped and failed, like even if Licht is pretty out of touch, even if he clearly does not have the best judgment as a media executive about having members of the media following him around, even if he's said, said and done some things that are a little icky in his leadership style, I would rather have had a world where he succeeded and where we could have a uh, a return to a more nuanced centrist news world. And I think that the fact that this was such a dismal failure demonstrates that one, the audience that used to want to consume a more like straight news sort of diet is not there. And if they, if they ever were there in cable, they're now in like alternative media spaces, but there's not a large audience that's not addicted to like the, the news crack that we create now. And secondly, that the, the staff and the people that are in our newsrooms and stuff have really no desire to, to, go back to where they were before. Like the internal revolt at CNN demonstrates that it's it's not just people, the consumers, it's also the industry. We're all addicted to this like crazy, cra- crazy making news that we consume today. I agree with you that the writing was on the wall before he even started. You remember they they canceled CNN Plus, I think, right before he started. And which was, was a huge disaster. And he's just trying to fix what Zucker made, which was like a moral panic outrage porn news station. 
Well, and I think, but I think even if the content was right, I think the 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 mechanism of delivery and the de, uh, delivery and cost structure is wrong. Right now, we're in this era of new media where all you need is a camera and a compelling person, and a lot of these YouTube pages are starting to garner more views than these huge, expensive cable news networks. And I think CNN and MSNBC are particularly vulnerable because their demographics tend to skew a little bit younger. And, Mm -hmm. you know, Fox, I think, has all the same issues we've talked about in previous segments, like a lot of the, the, the major questions that Fox is dealing with and also warding off their competitors. But the one thing that they have that CNN and MSNBC especially don't have is they have an older demographic, which means that all these other trends are going to take a little bit longer to get to Fox than other people, which means they have a little bit more time uh, to adjust to these things. But what I, what I think like CNN should have done if I were him, and I'm obviously no expert because we run a nonprofit media company that's relatively small. So like we're not, we're not playing in the same kind of power laws that they're playing in CNN. But what I would have done looking back is pivoted the way that the New York Times has pivoted, where the New York Times has done a lot in multimedia. They were really quick to to corner the podcast market and do really well there. They do really well. I don't love the content that they have on culture and society stuff, but it does extremely well. Um, they changed their cost structure and became a much more profitable company. ESPN is another good example. ESPN just bought the Pat McAfee show. They have like combined like what they know they're good for, which is live sports, with starting to like suck up some of the new media ventures that are out there. And Spotify is the best example. There's no reason why CNN shouldn't have been Spotify, where Spotify is buying up The Ringer, they're licensing with Rogan, they're licensing and buying Dak Shepard, right? They're saying, oh, the media is heading in a certain direction. We're going to use the power of the purse and our reputation to buy up all these emerging players. Now, Rogan would probably tell CNN to take a hike, but I'm sure Dax would have said yes. The ringer probably would have said yes for the right right price. He, they could have sucked up a lot of these new players. And yeah. that's what I think if I were if I were the replacement to Licked, and I'm, I'm not confident that they'll get there, is lower the cost structure. No more fancy buildings. You don't need like seven, you know, hundred thousand dollar cameras and a you know a million dollar studio and all this kind of stuff. You need to think differently about both the costs and the talent that you have in front of those cameras. But it takes like a radical re-envisioning. I also don't, I mean, to be fair, he was only there for a year. And I do feel like he made, without making important structural changes like you're referring to, I do think that he made important substantive changes to their lineup, to um, like inviting Republicans to, to speak with him on Capitol Hill and actually saying like, we won't bite your head off. You can come to like actually have a conversation with us on air. That's a huge plus. I mean, he fired the kind of Brian Stelter types that were um, probably their more divisive anchors. He really raised Caitlin Collins up as a new face of CNN, who I like and I respect. And I think she's um, probably the closest to like, uh, I, I mean, I guess a moderate or like genuine straight news kind of person. It's hard to pin down her own personal politics, which is rare today. Um, fired Don Don Lemon in the words of Tucker Carlson and did the Trump town hall and actually engaged with the opposition. So I mean, to me, that's a that's a 
lot of very substantive things that he did, but he, to your point, failed to kind of structurally change anything in a substantive way. But but who's the audience, Ricky, is what I'm thinking of, right? Like, Well, I mean, like, that's the problem is that? I want that. To, I want there to be a world where people want to hear from both political candidates and want a, a news anchor that maybe doesn't have their own personal politics on their sleeve and stuff. But like, and, and I do think that that was kind of like the world that we lived in before 2016. Like that is more... Uh, that's that's closer to where we were, but I feel like the sad part is our country has moved past that. Yeah, but I also wonder, you know, CNN's like, th- there's a show Crossfire. I don't know if that means anything to you, but Tucker Carlson was on it back yeah. in the day and Paul Begala was his counterpart. And it was framed around, here's your Republican, here's your Democrat, right? And so many people have tried to re- recreate that dynamic over time. I think the problem is, as we've talked about on the show a lot, and actually the premise behind this show, is that there's so many people who are so sick of that being the frame, right? Which is like, here's the Trump person and here's the Biden person defending Biden. And it leaves out so much of America. Whereas I think Mm. CNN at its best was Anthony Bourdain. Like these kind of, like these figures that transcend the divide and are not- Well, that's what they were trying to do with Caitlin Collins, I think. That was where that was how they were trying to position her for sure. But also I think one of the problems is everyone's tried to make that sort of framework happen in different shows with the right and the left, but it always ends up being like a panel of five people and then like a really wimpy representative of the other side right. that's just easy like a human straw man that you just get slapped around. I don't know how they get people to sign up for that job. Yeah. But I feel like that's the problem is that it's there's very few um versions of that where there's two people that actually have or multiple people that actually have respectable competing positions. Yeah, I wonder what our problem is here. I, I think we're, I think what we run into here is neither of us really wants to defend fully the, the position that people come to expect. Milk toast centrist. <laughs> yeah, it's like, looks like when I come on and we'll, we'll, we'll get there when we talk about Biden's age, it's like, it's, it's a classic example. It's like, if I were like playing the part, I'd be like, no, like Biden's vigorous. Like people are like splicing together videos, right? That's what I should do if I were like a, if I were Jen Psaki or something on MSNBC. The thing is, most people, as we'll get to that segment, look at a situation like that and they're like, yeah, like there is a problem there. I'm not sure I exactly buy into everything people are saying about it, but like I see things with my own eyes that even if I'm going to pull a lever for Democrats, I, I start to lose trust when people like are spinning me constantly. Everything is fine here. Yeah. It's like, so I think like it is a question of it's, it's something goes to the heart of this company, right? Which is when I heard certain things that Licht was saying and reading about it in the profile, I was in, I was very sympathetic to some of his ideas. The problem mm-hmm. was, and, th- and there's a lot of details in this piece about this is number one, he never really explained really well to his staff how they were going to go about implementing some of these things. Yeah. He was hitting on certain yeah. things, but he was never able to cl- clearly say, here's what was wrong. Here's what we're going to do. He famously moved his office out of the newsroom and into a different floor and often hid from his staff members. Um, He was very critical of Zucker's tenure, as he should have been. But I think the common Mm -hmm. criticism that both Alberta writes about explicitly in this piece and the staff was saying was that he wasn't specific enough to the staff about what it was he didn't like, but he was more specific to Alberta in this piece. And Alberta, at a certain point in the piece, was like, hey, like if you just said to your staff what you just said to me, maybe they'll understand. 
what it is that you want to do. But then he just like, honestly, like in the end, it comes to execution. And in the end, he just didn't pick the right people. When he put Don Lemon in the morning show, it didn't work. When he um, picked talent, like first of all, he's slow to pick talent for the um, to replace Lemon, and even just slow to pick talent generally for for different parts Excuse of me, the it's show. Pronounced he wasn't Lamont. picking the right people. Yeah, he's like I don't know. I don't know if you're serious. Don but he's like, he just he just he just didn't deliver, right? And I think that's even true of the town hall, right? Which is like. Like we we've talked about like the town hall. I have problems with it, but even like like no matter what pe- person's view is, that town hall didn't do anything on its own. It had to be a part of a larger strategy to bring a certain audience in, and it seemed like just chaos at CNN. Like they did this town hall meeting. He apologized for it eventually. His own staff went after him over it. If you read the piece, he was he himself was dejected after the town hall meeting almost immediately, right? So he didn't even yeah. want to own it fully. Well, yeah. but also like they pan to the the panel that's supposed to debrief about it, and it's like they're all going to sit around and cry about it. Like, I mean, that's <laughs> that's not really his fault that he that we have a media that he inherited the the helm of this company where we have a bunch of adult anchors that are going to like sit around and cry about the fact that the major political candidate from one of the two major parties in this country was allowed to exist. Like it's his, his numbers didn't shoot up after the town hall. Like it, it, we just, I mean, it just exposed what, who he is to people who were interested in seeing what and who he is and actually hearing from him rather than allowing a campaign to run in a, in a echo chamber on truth social. Like, I mean, to to me, that was insurmountable for him. He just, you know, we we you know we've had that debate before, so I won't get too into like the problems I have with that town hall. But putting all of that aside, he's res- those are his employees, so he's responsible. Like if they're going to kick to a panel, that's a, he's got a he's responsible <laughs> for what they put on air. So I as know. the CEO of that company, it's something that he needs to anticipate and manage. And if it's just chaos to the the viewer who's watching it, he's ultimately the person who has to manage that change. So either come in there and fire every single person and start over again, which is honestly what I would have done if I was given the freedom to do it from day one. Okay. I would like never to have seen you that do that and pull that, pull that off though. I don't know how you do that. But like people do this. I mean, this is what Musk did at Twitter for better or worse, right? I know, but Musk doesn't have a television station that's running 24 hours a day that you need to have someone's freaking face on and have to have like a degree of trust. If it's failing, it's failing, right? And I think like I think it's easier it, said than done. Though. It's easier said than done oh, to come sure. in and just say we're yeah. going to fire everyone. Yeah, I mean it is true, but like I think of it in the case of school takeovers, right? Which is something I have advised people on before. Whenever you inherit a bad culture in an underperforming school, the best thing to do, and I've advised people to do this, is to have people reapply for their jobs in a situation like that and start from square one because you have no idea what brought anybody in the door. And if they're really talented, the data will show it, the interviews will show it, a sound process will show it. But if you come in there and you're like, all right, I've got to turn this ocean liner around but I can't trust the very people who are sitting there with me trying to steer this thing, then it, radical change is needed in a situation like that. And I think this bears it out, right? He, he's basically dealing with an insurrection amongst his own people the entire time. Now, I don't, it's not his own people's fault. He didn't lead it well, very yeah. clearly. He wasn't very clear with his people, but part of what it, leading it clearly would have been like taking stock of the people around him and very quickly deciding who's ready for like the kind of radical change he was talking about and who was going to resist it. I would say to his credit, there were some pretty major firings, but 
I, I mean, my final thought on this is just that it took a degree of disconnection from reality to agree to take over a company that was doing as poorly as CNN at that point in time. And I think it was already past the, the precipice of a downward tumble. And this was just going to happen no matter who it was and no matter who it is after this. I'm not, I mean, if someone can write the ship, then I will give them a lot of credit and stand corrected. Well, uh, speaking of who's going to write the ship, uh, there's going to be an interim leader, Amy Antelis, uh, who was the sort of what they call the talent whisperer at CNN, and she was in charge of CNN films. I guess she still she's is been in doing a great CNN job films. whispering to talent so uh, far. So that's promising. <laughs> <laughs> well, she is well regarded, at least CNN films. People love CNN films, from what I understand. Um, there's a triumvirate. So there's another woman named Virginia Mosley, who's the executive vice president of editorial and Eric Sterling, who's the executive vice president of programming. So because you know, who's going to be great to write the ship of a company that's been tumbling and falling the people that are already there. And let's just make it three of them. You were just giving (laughs) me a hard time for saying they should let go of everybody. But now it sounds like you're saying like, anybody. (laughs) no, I'm saying that he is let go. He, I was, all I was saying was that he did let go to his credit of a good deal of some pretty major frontward facing people is all. Should we talk about other people leading things like Joe Biden, our, our oh, wow. young and what, spry. What an elegant transition. <laughs> what a transition. Our all young right. and spry president here. So Ricky, you went to, was it New Hampshire? Is that right? I did. I went to Laconia, New Hampshire. And, um, and I spent a day shadowing, I guess the youngest, the youngest ever Republican candidate, um, Vivek Ramaswamy, who's 37. And we talked about Biden's age among other things, or the fact that he is as young as he is. Um, the reason that I even was up there was that I wrote an op-ed criticizing him in the New York post, um, for his proposal to raise the minimum voting age to 25 and then tie it to like civics engagement. Um, and to his credit, he invited me up there to actually disagree in person, which I think is pretty refreshing compared to some other candidates that might not really want to engage with somebody who's publicly argued against them. But You should test cool. it. You should criticize Ron DeSantis and see if he'll invite you on the trail. <laughs> is this my new... I heard, this takes, is my new <laughs> I heard he takes well to that. <laughs> oh, yeah. He, well, um, that's one person that, that Ramaswamy directly called out for not engaging in adversarial media enough. And, you know, Ramaswamy is maybe the reason why Don Lemon lost his job at CNN, because he went on and that apparently, according to reports, was the final straw. Don Lemon did not take too well to some of his points and got a little bit ad hominem. So he's he's been engaging in media and pulling down uh, media giants. But fortunately, he didn't pull me down yet. (laughs) So you wrote a piece, so you wrote a piece for the New York Post, basically sizing up his chances, but also, you know, a little bit of on the trail, like how he was conducting himself on the trail. Now, curious question for you, because you're, you're relatively young and you're not an operative. Was this your first time like hardcore on the campaign trail before presidential campaign trail? Oh yeah. I mean, I was like 17 on the last campaign cycle, right? So tell me about it. No, no, no. I guess I was like like 19. just kidding. It was, it was really interesting for a What did me. we learn about this experiment, this American okay. democracy? It's so exhausting. Like I was only there for like half of his day and I was uh, driving up and looking at his social media and he's already doing like town halls and round tables and stuff. And, like 
eight in the morning. And then I ended up uh, shadowing him for the rest of the day until his like 9.30 p.m. private jet takeoff to Iowa to continue. Like I just could never do that. That seems absolutely exhausting. He was always up, always on, always smiling, always hugging people, always ready for the photo op or whatever cameras around him. Oh my God. And you know who else I think could not do that? Our president who ran from his basement last time around and probably will do the same. Right. Or, uh, I mean, this is going to set the tone for this whole segment, but also I don't think his predecessor either, who was apparently showing up at the Oval Office like 10 a.m. or 11 a.m. towards the end of his presidency after watching TV all morning. That doesn't Um, surprise me, but Trump does have a good deal of energy and enthusiasm, I would say, that blows (laughs) Biden out of the water. You sound like the New York Times now. You sound like the New York Times defending Biden now. Uh, But okay, I don't want to breeze past Vivek because I do think it's important um, to shine a little bit of a light on on what you saw out there. No secret to any listener here that I don't necessarily love Vivek's policy positions, especially I'm a, I like having an FBI, for example. But I will I will compliment him on this. Somebody who spent most of my adult life in and around political campaigns. He's very good at this. Like he is mm-hmm. very good at campaigning. And he has, I think, staked out um a real lane, not just his age, but like his willingness to have like a heterodox combination of positions, which you outlined really well in your New York Post piece, which we should talk about. But he's also, uh, his, his energy that you're talking about on the trail and like his like rather openness to experimenting with new ways of communicating Mm -hmm. and connecting with voters and the fact that he's really, really rich so he can, you know, afford to, to do all this kind of work and not have to spend all of his time raising money. It makes him dangerous in a kind of way. I, I, it's hard to see the path this time, but he's so young yeah. that my sense is this guy's not going anywhere. And as much as I don't like, I don't know him, but I, I don't love his positions. I'm, I'm, but I'm a Democrat. I think if I loved his positions, that would be a bad sign for him. Uh, yeah, I do come away oppressed by his his like what he's doing on the trail. Like I, yeah. I really am. I mean, I I sat down with him for like an hour and the one quote that kind of floored me and I wasn't expecting to hear come out of someone's mouth who's running a Republican primary campaign is I'm using the Republican Party as a vehicle to get my agenda across. And I I mean, mm, that's that's, that's kind of refreshing to me, although I would I did ask him why he wouldn't run as an independent. And it was just basically like, you know, there's there's no infrastructure and, and way to no path to victory that way. But, you know, that's a, that's unusual to hear a presidential candidate at least admit that they're not a down the line whatever and actually might be a little more yeah. heterodox and nuanced like he's somebody that i do think would have a really good chance in um winning over some independence and it's unfortunate that our primary structure requires him to go around courting like maga hat wearers <laughs> kind of yeah i wish you unfortunate <laughs> Yeah, you know, for the thing is like, and and once again, like my wish list is not going to help him anyway. I just wish his positions were different on certain issues like the election, right? Like, because to me, that's always like a litmus test of what I view as honesty is like, was the election stolen or not? And I wish he was like more forceful and clear on that kind of stuff. But you did go down the list, like his positions on issues, I'm trying to remember, refresh my memory. Like he had, like, he has like a really odd combination of positions for a Republican primary candidate outside of some of that stock and trade. Yeah. I mean, a lo- his, the core of what he's um, kind of pushing is a little bit less 
policy and more like patriotism and um and like civic values and and reframing like a quote that he he said to me which i'm gonna bungle but is like essentially that conservatives have been running away from things and and promoting more traditional values has been seen as a regression and he's trying to like push it run towards things and push it as a progression um he's also been unafraid of like calling out musk very publicly calling out DeSantis very publicly um, yeah he called out DeSantis on some of those free speech bills right yeah um for apparently he's alleging that there's um effectively hate speech laws in in Florida that DeSantis signed and you know and he went after saying, Musk on China too which I find fascinating yeah I mean he doesn't he's harder to categorize he's less predictable he's willing to engage with differences so I mean to me those are all positive things um and I I mean it was a it was a really cool experience but Speaking, going from a young candidate to an old candidate. You're um, knocking these talk? transitions out of the park today. Oh, Ricky. I know. So they're, so so they're, so, they're so slick. So proud of you. They're so slick. Let's talk about Biden's age, shall we? Yes. Yes. Okay. I've been looking forward to this segment. Not really. I, it's, <laughs> so, okay. Let me lay down a couple of facts. I, I, I know, I know I'm going to cede the floor to you at a certain point here, but Trump is 76. Biden is 80. Biden is older than 96% of Americans. He first entered the Senate in 1973. Seven of his 99 colleagues from that period of time are still alive. Uh, There were only 48 states, Ricky, when he was born. And the actuarial life table, which is published by the Social Security Administration, gives the average male, which obviously if you're president of the United States, you're not an average male, you have better health care and resources yeah. than anybody else. But the average male, 82, which will be when Biden would serve his second term, has a 67% chance of living to 86 when he'd finished the term. And that's just living, not thriving. Mm-hmm. Um, Trump has a 73% chance of staying alive to the end of his second term according to the age, obviously. There are different yeah. things we could talk about with the both of them, which is, I imagine, where we're going to go here. Ricky. What a world right. we live what in we where we're calculating the odds that our presidents will survive. Right. Just survive. The, the, obvious the, refrain, four years. the obvious refrain is age discrimination. And look, like I, I, I got Listen, nothing against older people. It's just a question of how we plan as a society for these types of things, like based on statistics. Well, I mean, yeah. it's... Uh, not even for, I mean, first of all, we could, we haven't even scratched the surface of the fact that Kamala Harris is the backup plan, which let's get to that. I, I do want to talk to um, that. I, I want to say though, like I, Trump is 76. I think Trump is exponentially more energetic than Biden, exponentially more able to think on his feet. Um, Bernie is 81. Everyone knows I'm no Bernie fan, but Bernie is totally fine, totally with it. I don't I don't think it's about the number. I mean, it's obviously the number is a correlation, but it's about him and his his mental acuity. And I it seems as though everyone around him has a very vested interest in keeping him away from experiences and, and situations in which he can ad lib, including being on the phone with me when I was nine. My mom w- ran into him and handed him her cell phone and said, can you say hi to my daughter? And he was very nice. He was great. He was super nice. But he told me no dating anyone until I'm 30 because I'll be as pretty as my mom is. So, you know, he's he's always right off the right off the cuff with the the charmers. But let's can I can I introduce you to some of his best moments here, which I'm sure I know. And, and just heard. for the listeners, I'm not going to let that Trump pitch go by. So trust me, if you're the Trump stay pitch? with me, if you're with the, meaning like saying I'm not Trump endorsing with his energy, him. I will come. He's just no, no, doing no, better. Like a, yeah, yeah. I'm doing I don't mean better pitch than like Biden. 
Well, okay. So maybe before we get to the Biden stuff. So Trump ne- has not made sense, I think, either in a long time. He has sentences like, there's no collusion between certainly myself and my campaign, but I can always speak for myself and the Russians, comma, zero. <laughs> so there's this website called Stat. Oh, I'm which not then saying that he's the most cogent person, but I don't think that's a function of his age. No, but so, okay, that's what I'm saying is there's this website, uh, Stat, which reviewed decades of Trump's on-air interviews over the decades and compared them over the years and found, and we'll link to this in the show notes, that in the 80s and 90s, he had a more complex vocabulary, he was more cogent and all that kind of stuff. I'm doing a very good job of distracting you from what I noticed. Yesterday, Biden was more cogent than he is today. and the peg here is is that Biden tripped over a sandbag at an event over the weekend, which is not a great look. But once again, I want to say, like, Trump had his own moments. Like, that time he was going up the down the airplane, and we, he looked like he was, like, a thousand years old, you know, and he's holding onto the railing. Um, now, I'm doing everything I can to, okay. to distract you from what you're about to play right now. So why don't you go for it? I don't even know if this needs an introduction, but... I just, I, this is also, I, I respect my elders. I respect my president, but I think that we should be able to talk about the fact that this is something that ha- it happened. This. I got hairy legs that turn, that, 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 that turn uh, um, blonde in the sun. And the kids used to come up and reach in the pool and rub my leg down. So it was straight and then watch the hair come back up again. They look at it. So I learned about roaches. I learned about kids jumping on my lap. And I've loved kids jumping on my lap. Look, it makes total sense to me. I don't know what the problem okay. here is. And just for context, he's yeah. like at a podium giving his speech. I'm like literally tearing up from that. Because what was that? This is before look. he was even elected. How about this one? Here, I just have three. I'm, I'm sparing you because I'm sure that there are five today that I could pull. This is him on the campaign trail, like berating a student that asked him a question. It's a good question. Number one, I was a Democratic caucus. You ever been to a caucus? No, you haven't. You're a line dog faced pony soldier. You said you were, but you're, you're, now you got to be honest. I'm going to be honest with you. So I think that was a Are little Are you a lying okay. dog face pony soldier? Like to say that to like a, a teenager who asks you a question? What is that? I think what is that a was lying dog face pony so- soldier? My, my read on that one at least was that one was in jest because everybody in the audience was laughing. I think he was just being like, you're a young kid. Of course, you weren't at a caucus meeting. And that's why I think he used such colorful oh, no. language. This one's, this one's more excusable. But what is a lying dog face pony soldier though? Do you know? I don't know. He's old. I don't know old people sayings. I know old people sayings. When I was in like second grade, my teacher was like, why are you saying fooey and son of a gun? Because I have an old dad. I know these words. That's not and that's not one. Okay, last one. What else you got here? America is a nation that can be defined in a single word. I was in the foot. foot, Excuse me. He does have a stutter, Ricky. I don't know. Like, how much of this is new? I don't know. It's not new. I just think, and I'm, I'm, okay, first of all, again, I respect my elders. I don't think that that it's just the number alone. I think, I mean, and it's also not to say that the, the, the opposite option is too great either at 76, but I think we have an issue in the way that our, our presidential campaigns work if these are the two options that are put before us. And, you know, there are exceptions to the rule. I would say Bernie Sanders, I don't I don't know about any major gaffes. Like, he's completely with it. 
And I think he's and he's older than Biden. So so there's the proof that it's not just about the number. But I think we have a pretty major problem if we're facing down the potential of a third lesser of two evils sort of election that people feel very compromised in, in which one person seems to not even be totally with it now. And the campaign cycle hasn't even started. So then we're talking about how is he going to be in 2028? Yeah, I agree, actually. So I I think I think the problem here is that the two parties, voters would thrust forward a weekend at Bernie's corpse uh, if they had to and vote for it over somebody from a, a 35 year old, totally vigorous impressive person of the other side, right? Like, I just think that that's what we've reached in our politics. Which is And then so the question becomes, yeah, I mean, so there obviously, we talked to to Yang about this, but we've also, the, we have primaries. And I think, just speaking from the Democratic side, the thing that worries me, and Yang talked about this too, is that we're not having a real primary on the Democratic side. And that worries. Yeah, we're debates. And I think, we're also not having an honest conversation about Kamala Harris, where uh, trust me, I like nearly every operative staff member, including people in this administration, when you get them privately, will say the same exact thing, which is we cannot win with Kamala Harris. And we've talked about it on this podcast many times. I don't need to go through it, but she is just non-starter with the voters. And I uh, we're just unaccepted, like we're just accepting the fact that this is the vice presidential nominee when we have like the odds I just described, like we could be charitable. We could say it's 10, 20% chance that he doesn't survive the term, right? Let's be charitable. That's a lot. Like that's, that's a really I mean, high percentage chance. To me, it's yeah. not the mortality. Like I'm, I, that just doesn't, I mean, like presidents have gotten assassinated and stuff. That's always an issue and a concern. Like it's, that, it's not even that. It's just like who is at the helm of this country right. because it doesn't – it seems pretty evident and obvious to a lot of people and especially to young people, which by the way, his his approval rating was pretty high with Gen Z when he came into office. It was 59%. It's dropped to 36%. The most precipitous drop even though it's the most liberal generation. Um, and yeah. I mean I think I, – I, where are – like it – I would have, I think if he were the, the person who ran against Trump in 2016, I don't think he would have had any problem winning and pulling it off. And I think that he was a closer approximation to the supposedly unifying moderate that he has not turned out to be. But also I'll see these like pressers and these tweets and these um, like press releases that come out of his administration that sound like they're written by like a a 39 year old who has like a gender studies degree yeah. and it's like <laughs> equity and like all the buzzwords of this like left wing stuff that like this guy was look at his record. Like he's not, he's not the person that is producing what his administration is doing. And that's no way to engender any sort of faith. Like this feels like some sort of dystopia where we just have the the puppet and then who knows what's going on in the background. Yeah, I think a lot of the debate has also been around this New York Times piece that came out over the weekend around his age. And there were, I think, like three or four writers on the byline. And it's a long piece. And I think if you focus on any one paragraph, you could say, well, they're they're acknowledging the issue here or they're actually spinning for Biden. Uh, yeah. I think it's a little bit more the latter than the former. But I do think there is this 
this is true. Like everything I said about Kamala aside, the one thing I can say in the New York Times' defense is when I ask people about Biden inside the administration, people who are very honest with me, they universally say this guy still brings it every single day. He might not be as coherent as he otherwise would have been, but he's getting up early, he's showing up to meetings, he's pushing his agenda. And I think I like much of the chagrin of conservatives, he's getting a lot done. You know, it's, but it's not like, it's not like it's not like I'm saying like, oh, this guy's like complicit in it even. It almost feels like he's just a, a character in this narrative. Like I actually feel bad for the guy. And I, I like I know that there are conservatives that'll laugh when he falls on camera and stuff. Like that's not me. I find that really depressing. This is someone who should not be in the position that he's in. But to the point of the New York Times thing, I mean, we're we're now in 2023. He's been a the president for a while. And the fact that we're living in a world in which people cannot or are or, or, or hesitant to, or it's a big deal that that people in our media world are recognizing just very obvious realities that normal people have been talking about and noticing for so long on both sides of the aisle is so disturbing. Like the fact that we're even talking about like, oh yeah. And then the New York Times acknowledged that the ancient president (laughs) is ancient. That's super (laughs) depressing. Or like if someone on the right says something that's like kind of anti-Trump and they're like, oh yeah, like we're someone on the right is finally acknowledging that we had a president who was talking about like grabbing pussies and stuff. Like this is such a sad world. This is these obvious things that are, I don't know. It just feels I'm, I'm kind of ranting, but it feels like you can't just say something that's so clear. No, I agree. And I don't know what the answer is, honestly, especially at the presidential level. Cause you, we talked about Yang, we talked to Yang about this. And I think like, even he acknowledged that the presidential is very tricky because of the way the electoral college works. Right. So I think part of the energy and why I still consider myself a Democrat is that I think like the, the the work to be done inside of the primary system is really important and like advocating for different voices within the primary. I'm particularly despondent about this primary because I, you know, like at some point yeah. I think we'll probably talk about RFK Jr. and something like this. There's just not a lot of options for people who want something other than Biden. And it's no knock yeah. on RFK. We'll talk about, we'll talk to him about Isaac with, with Tango and we'll talk about strengths and weaknesses, but like, I certainly don't see a candidate who represents my voice in the democratic primary right now. And I, yeah. I could imagine you have similar feelings on the Republican side. Speaking of which, maybe I'll splice this clip in, but I, yesterday at like six 30 in the morning or some ungodly hour, I was on a Gen Z voting panel with Fox and Steve Ducey asked us the one candidate you are most excited about. Just give me the name. You're first. Um, I would say I'm excited to see who else is to come and hopefully an independent or a third party candidate. And the way that I just glitched on national TV and I was like, "Ah, oh, no, no one. And then every other kid after me, except for I think one, I think there were eight of us. Everyone else was like, yeah, no one, no one, no one. So at least my glitch turned out to, to set a trend and I wasn't the only one, but I literally could not come up with like, I'm on TV all the time. I come up with things I can bullshit my way through anything. I could not come up with a name that I felt like, yes, this is the person that's representing me. I'm so excited. I think they have a chance. I think this is all good. Like not it's it's a depressing place that we're right. in. So Yeah, and of course like politics is not a bespoke exercise. There's never going to be anybody who's perfect, but I think it's so far a field of the voices of the average American. Well, the pro- yeah. It's depressing. The yeah. problem is like someone I mean like I think Vivek is cool, but I also know that how the primary works. And like, so I can't get excited about that prospect when, when he's pulling at 3.5%. And like, it's just, I don't know. 
I'm, very, I'm becoming very despondent. I think we should burn it all down. All right. Well, it sounds like somebody is burning something down based on what's going on outside. Well, let's talk about Credo. So Stanford University has this research arm uh, called Credo, and they for years have been the gold standard in measuring the effectiveness in charter, of charter schools. So their first analysis that I ever read was in 2009. And this actually, at that point, people who hated charter schools used to cite this data because back then they found that charters underperformed in math and English compared to traditional public schools. Then yeah. in 2013, their next big study came out and said that charters performed better than traditional public schools in English, but lagged in math, that urban charter schools did better than urban traditional public schools, but that suburban and rural charter schools didn't. And so it was kind of mixed results. Uh, and that was the last analysis. And so, um, People have been sort of trading these studies, making arguments about charter schools over the past two decades. And particularly the reason why everybody uses this standard, Ricky, uh, before we talk about what this new study found, is because of the way that they measure performance, which most people acknowledge is the best way to measure uh, charter school performance, which is they use uh, what's called a statistical match, which essentially they say is, all right, this kid who goes to Nashville Prep, one of my schools, where, what's their zip code? What's their address? What's their demographics? What's their prior academic performance? Do they have a disability? What's their income? And then they statistically match that student with a, with somebody who goes to a traditional public school, and then they measure the academic growth of those students over time. And it's a way to basically guard against what a lot of critics of the data say, which is, well, you're controlling for income, you're controlling for race or whatever. So they do all of those things. And Martin West, who's the academic dean at Harvard Graduate School of Education, called Credo easily the most comprehensive analysis of charter school performance to date, specifically about this study, Ricky. Mm -hmm. And you want to give us a rundown of what they found about charter school performance nationally? Yeah, so they looked at 1.8 million kids in charters from 29 states, um, and this is scaled to a traditional 180-day school year. So basically, um, each day represents like an amount of instruction that you're outpacing what a typical school year would produce. Um, and this year in 2023, um, students in charter schools compared to their um, counterparts in public schools gained an additional 16 days in English and reading instruction on average and an additional six days in math on average. And so I'm curious, Rob, like looking at the 2009, 2013, so it went from underperforming in both at charter schools to outperforming their public school counterparts only in English and still underperforming in math in 2013, and then now outperforming on both. What do you think has changed? Yeah, and one thing to, to, to mention is that although this study was released in 2013, 2015 to 2019 was the period of time in which the data uh, that mm. we're analyzing is, and they basically, for obvious reasons, after 2019, they basically shut down the analysis and started pulling it into a report. But I, th I have a couple of observations to this. One is it's a it's a mark that charter schools are getting better over time, in part because there has been a robust effort to uh, fund and scale the schools that work. And another part of this data that really stands out is that charter management organizations, which are like nonprofit umbrella groups that manage multiple charter schools, dramatically outperformed the rest of the sector. So when I started one school, Nashville Prep, by six, by the sixth year, we had six schools and we were a network called Republic Schools. That was a charter management organization. We were able to scale because the first school did really well. 
The second school did really well. So then funders came in, including the federal government and the state, and helped us get grants to expand, but also other states like Mississippi recognized our results. They had very stringent authorizing laws to say, all right, these new new startups without results, we're not going to give them a charter. But you have all these results, we're going to give you an extra, our first charter in Mississippi, which is what they did, which means that Mississippi's charter school results were really good, right? So uh, the, the sector got better at selecting schools, and they also got better at supporting organizations that have really good results. And part of this is if you look at data, there's tremendous regional variation, right? So uh, certain states like New York, they had the equivalent of 75 extra days of growth of reading and 73 days in math. Tennessee, which is where I came from, 34 extra days of reading, 39 days of math. So those kind of states with very healthy authorizing environments did really well. Uh, whereas some states that had like earlier laws or were less stringent and who they're giving charters to, to, et cetera, had much worse results, in some cases, negative results. But the other thing that stands out is that charters do a really good job with some of the most vulnerable students with some important ca caveats. So black students attending charter schools gained 35 days of growth in reading and 29 days of growth in math. Uh, Hispanic students, 30 days of growth in reading, 19 days of math. Um, and poor students, 23 extra days of reading, 17 extra days of math, and they had stronger results also in ELL. The one exception is special education students where charters performed worse uh, than uh, traditional public schools. Yeah, that was something that I wanted to ask you about because that is true for black and Hispanic students, but then for white and multiracial students, the opposite is true where they perform better in public schools. And to me, I'm trying to sort that out in my mind because typically when I hear statistics like that, I think like, well, there's a correlation of, of race and, and socioeconomic status or like there are all these extraneous factors at play. But if this is if this study is pairing them with uh, the closest approximation to a twin in a similar school from a similar background, then I'm curious why you think there's such a staggering and obvious racial differential. Yeah, and, and one sort of point about language, I like to think of it as like charter public schools versus traditional public schools, because most of the time what they're talking about are nonprofit organizations that are authorized by the state, um, just like a sort of linguistic piece. But the I don't know what to make of the white students and multiracial students. I think I mean, the it's whites, staggering, the difference. I do think that the, the there are a couple of things. One is if you look at poorer students, regardless of race, they're doing better in charters. I think part of the issue is, I think gets at the suburban-urban um, divide or the rural-urban divide between white and um, uh, white and non-white students. And, and translation being, in urban settings, by and large, charter school students tend to be students of color. So like my network was nearly 100% African-American and Latino, for example, which was very common back when I was running schools. There has been a concerted effort since to build more diverse by design charter schools like Valor Collegiate in Nashville or Summit Prep in California. These, these networks that are explicitly appealing to higher income, more um, racially diverse populations. I think it's going to take some time for us to see how that data plays out. But for one reason or another, rural and suburban charter schools have not done as well. And those, in my opinion, are probably more likely to be the white schools. The multiracial, I really don't have much of an explanation for. for. And final question for you is, is this vindicating Mr. Charter School? 
<laughs> well, I'll say a couple of things. One is uh, I'd shout out to my former network. They did really well. They were named as a gap closing school here. And um, and that's not a shout out to myself because there was only one year of my data in here. All the other uh, data was from after I left. Uh, and shout out to Stacey Shells, one of our hosts. She's the host of Sweat the Technique podcast. Her network had awesome results. The same is true of Doug Lamov from Uncommon and, and, and the whole KIP results of Ryan Hill. So basically our network as a whole here at the branch there's a reason why we pick these hosts. They're people who know what they're talking about when it comes to schools. So that makes me really happy. I think the other flip side of this is that this is vindicating in a way. I always knew our schools were doing well because I read the data and I know most people who work at schools know that. But there's always this effect where you go home for Thanksgiving, you tell your parents what you do, or you run into somebody at a party, you say, I work at a charter school. And inevitably, you're going to hear some version of the repackaging of the old arguments, which is, oh, well, charters don't even perform any better than traditional public schools. Or I heard that charter schools like are for affluent kids or for the motiv motivated, et cetera. And I think what this study does is at the national level, it tells a story, which is that these things really work writ large, but like anything else, there's going to be variation, but they work. They're really good for the most vulnerable kids as a whole. Um, and uh, that should give people a little bit more pep in their step to do the work. I think on the flip side, the data around special education should tell us, well, okay, well, let's continue to work really hard to make these schools as inviting as possible for those students. There's one thing I was very proud of is that we used to have very high, I don't know what the numbers are now, but in some of our schools, like my flagship school, Nashville Prep, in some years, we had over 20% of students who were on IEPs, dramatically higher than the district. And those students did really, really well. We were named actually by the district as a school that was exceptional at providing gains for those kinds of students. And obviously, based on this data, not all schools were like that. And so I think it's really important that um, charters take a look at that data, especially regionally, where there's probably some variation in enrollment to say, all right, how do we, how do we close that gap and do better there? But yeah, I'm like, I'm really excited about this data, and I hope it gives a, a group of people who've been working really hard, often under a lot of political attacks from people who weaponize earlier versions of this data to say that these schools shouldn't exist. It should give everybody extra energy and enthusiasm to continue this work that we're doing to expand these schools to as many families who want them as possible. This is Ricky. You've reached the last debate. If you have some feedback for us, leave it after the town. Hi, Ricky. Hi, Ravi. I had a thought about your piece about vasectomies. Uh, Ricky said that she didn't think there was any um, patriarchal conspiracy concerning why uh, women have contraception and men don't. At least I think that's what I remember. And that just kind of made me wonder. So I did a quick search online and found um, several articles about different types of male contraception that were being researched um, since like the 50s. And basically, each time there would be some inconvenient side effect. So like the one in the 50s, the men couldn't drink alcohol while they were taking it. Um, and there's one that mentioned acne and mood swings. And so each time the research was stopped because of the side effect. And meanwhile, we have female contraception where um, the pill has like, you know, the 10-page tiny writing of all the potential side effects. And some of them are, you know, not only inconvenient, but dangerous. 
So it seems like a system where male inconvenience is treated as like more important than female safety. And that seems like maybe that's patriarchal. So I just kind of wanted to mention that because it seems to me that if we put like the funding and the research into male contraception that we have put into female contraception, we probably would have, you know, maybe even some without side effects by now. Um, so anyway, that's all. Um, I hope you all are having a good week. Bye-bye. What say you, Ricky? I mean, my response to that is I, I think that's just, I mean, obviously there's his, I'm talking about in the modern era. I don't think the reason why there's birth control falls on women is, is for, I think the primary reason is because of our biology. And also I can say for myself as a woman, I would not be comfortable relying on a partner for birth control. I'd much rather be my first line of defense a hundred percent. Um, I think a lot of it is responding to, I mean, I'm sure in past eras, there's, there has been not as much research and development, certainly in male birth control and probably today as well. Um, but I think it's also responding to the market incentive. I think there are a lot of women who feel like I do where they want to take this into their own hands. But I also am optimistic going forward that there will be more market demand for men wanting to take things into their hands too, especially in the post, um, post-Dobbs era. But I would also say on a kind of side note tangent to this, one of the issues that I have that I pointed out before is is the incentive structures right now in the pharmaceutical industry in terms of like the the huge lack of R&D that's being put into bettering the birth control methods that women do have because it's like, I, I'm going to misquote this, but I think it's like something like 3% of the revenue from the birth control pill has been put into research and development. It's changed very little since the 60s. And I think that's because there's been like a lack of um, conversation around the fact that this these methods do kind of suck. Um, and so I think there's there's probably going to be a shift um, as, you know, I've written in the past about more young women moving away from hormonal birth control options. Um, we're talking now about more men wanting birth control options for themselves. I do think the incentive structure will change for pharmaceutical industries. And I'm sure that there are, um, there's just a truth in the fact that in the past men are more easily able to say, Oh, this is an uncomfortable side effect for me. And so therefore I don't want to take this. Whereas, you know, if you're the person with a uterus and potentially a child inside of you, it's a little different. And you might say, Mm the acne and the cramps or the whatever it is, is worth it to me. So I don't know. I mean, it's definitely complex, but I wouldn't say that there's no patriarchal anything mm-hmm. at all whatsoever. But I do think, Down you know, with the biology, biology has plopped it into our laps and there's no way around that. Well, I'm going to continue to play my part as the the feminist on this podcast. Um, <laughs> and just say thank you for this voicemail listener. And I, I'm with you. Like if, there, if, if what she's saying is true, uh, listener, I'm with you that, like if that's true, I got to look into it, obviously. But then that could obviously affect the market we have today. So it's a really, really great point, Ricky. Gives you something to think about. Um, I want to thank our listeners uh, for being with us today. We just have embracing a the patriarchy. Episode- <laughs> yeah, I. Uh, it's funny to me the dynamic we have on this show, where I I often take a position that people would expect from the female host, and you take the position that people would expect from the male host, which you know constantly keeping you guessing. Um, mm. but we, uh, we're going to have a great episode on Tuesday with Isaac from Tangle again. He's going to come back on and, uh, co-host the show. Cause Ricky, your birthday's coming up and you're going to be celebrating. How old are you going to be? 
I'm going to be 23, which sounds old to me, but I'm also traveling actually. It's not just to celebrate my birthday selfishly. Um, I'm going to be down in DC. No, I don't really actually, I kind of hate birthdays, but I'm going to be down in DC, um, doing a dinner with some journalists that real clear politics is putting together for my book. So that's where I will be traveling to. Awesome. Well, uh, thank you listeners. We'll be back on Tuesday and of course, make sure to send in voicemails three two one two zero 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 five seven zero. Make sure to get out there and put a positive review for us wherever you get your podcasts. It's the one thing we ask of you. Uh, it helps drive other people to this podcast and spread the word to anybody you know. Thank you very much, everybody. The Lost Debate is a part of the Branch Network. The show is produced by Mickey Ayub, research support by Ariane Misra, video editing by Julia Waldman, and editing and sound design by Dean Metherall. <laughs> <laughs>